This is the podcast that finds the most elusive people, the everyday amazing kind that you know nothing about. I'm hunting these people down and exposing their beauty to the world. I'm Andrew Bracewell, and this is Everyday Amazing. It's okay to feel anxious. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel scared. All of this stuff is okay. Welcome to the Everyday Amazing Podcast. Today, I am in way over my head. Joining me is Dr. Shahana Alibi. I recently met Dr. Alibi through a TEDx event where she spoke about emotional literacy and reimagining how we treat youth who suffer with their mental health. As I listened to Dr. Alibi, I was struck by her sincerity and how non-clinical she was as she peeled back the layers of a very complex issue. I knew immediately that I wanted to spend more time with Dr. Alibi and convince her to come on the show. I'm ecstatic that she agreed. Dr. Alibi, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Have you ever done this before? First time doing a podcast. First time. Excited? Nervous? Actually, really excited. I don't need to memorize anything, so it's a good thing. (laughs) That's true. I get to play doctor today and you get to play patient. I know. This will be interesting. (laughs) I'm excited. Before we begin... I thought it would be, it would make most sense for me to read your bio from your website uh, in your words so that everyone could hear your perspective on what it is you're doing. Does that make sense? Sounds great. Here we go. In Dr. Alibi's words, I know the pressures many women face, trying to be there for our kids, trying to push forward in our careers, and at the same time, doing it all with a smile. Like many of you, I also have a story. I thought I knew the importance of eating well and moving more. But after completing my residency in family medicine, the stressors of life caught up to me. After the birth of my first son, I found myself deep into what I would later find out was postpartum anxiety, the lesser known counterpart to postpartum depression. Postpartum anxiety can present with panic attacks, OCD type symptoms, and feelings of being constantly keyed up and on edge. With over 10 years of studying nutrition, exercise, and medicine, I thought I knew what it took to keep me well, but I fell short. The missing link for me was healthy thinking. I was used to sprinting through life at this pace. Eventually, you hit the wall. I've come up with the pyramid of optimal health because it's something I've used personally with my patients. By focusing first on our thought patterns, our internal dialogue, and our state, we can then set ourselves up to make better decisions when it comes to things like eating and exercise. How long ago did you write that? You know, listening to that again, I had forgotten I wrote that. So it's probably been about two or three years since I wrote that. It's refreshing to hear again, though. You touched on something in there called your pyramid Mm -hmm. philosophy, which I really want to dive into deeper with you. But before we do that, I have a question. How does a person who starts in chiropractic end up in family medicine, then somehow end up in helping youth with their mental health? I think that's called life in some ways, you know, it's just, so I think to understand the journey, you have to understand a little bit about my upbringing. So my parents came to this uh, country as refugees, basically. They were thrown out of their home in Uganda at 1972 with the exodus. So you can imagine when you're 19, basically they're on the first flight to anywhere they could get out of the place. And it happened to be Canada, thank goodness. But when you're raised by parents who have that mentality, 
For them, it was find a career that is a safe career. So that would often be nursing or engineering, or in my dad's case, it was pharmacy. So for the longest time, they raised my sister and I uh, with the notion that, you know, go into pharmacy. It's a great career. Um, You have a stable job. You help other people. And that was the goal for me. So I actually wrote, it was called the PCAT at the time, did my full application. But the day before I had to submit it, I never did. And the reason for that was there was something in my heart that told me that this is just not the path for me. I knew it was safe. But what I loved the most was, and it sounds maybe pretty innocent right now, but just exercise. And the reason I loved it is because at the age of 16, I took night classes while I was in grade 11 um, to become a certified fitness instructor, basically. And I never grew up playing team sports. I never was on a soccer team and I always really wanted to be good at sports. My parents always stressed individual sports. I was a big tennis player and squash player, Uh, loved that. But you come to an age where you're just like, I want to be involved in people kind of working out together because I never got that when I grew up. And I went to my first fitness class, I think I was 15, and I just tripped all over myself doing aerobics. (laughs) My sister and I were in the back, but there was something about it of people just working out together, trying to be healthier, great music is playing. And I was like, one day I'm going to be at the top of that class teaching everybody. And that's what I did. So long story short, I fell in love with group exercise. I fell in love with personal training. And then I discovered this thing called kinesiology that you could actually study. And I enrolled myself in what was called human kinetics at the time at UBC. And that's how I met my now husband, who is a chiropractor. But most people from kinesiology think of one of three things, physio, chiro, or med. And I thought about all three of them, but chiropractic made the most sense for me because it combined my love of business with my love of health and wellness. And for the first time, it was about keeping people well, not diagnosing people with disease. Like I didn't want that. I didn't want to push medication. The missing link for me was that if you're going to be, I hope, a successful physio or chiropractor, you should like treating people with your hands. That should be something that you should enjoy. I didn't get the memo on that, basically. (laughs) I liked everything else. But when I entered chiropractic school, my worst class was manual therapy. And I'm thinking, Uh well, that I should actually enjoy. And so I rerouted and um, I applied again to UBC Medical School, kind of telling them that I'd made a mistake uh, by not accepting their offer the first time. And they luckily let me in the second time. So how how long were you in? Chiropractic full studies. year, full year, full year. And previous to that, though, you had been accepted, correct, into med school. Yeah, at UBC. Turned yeah. it down to do the chiropractic yep. thing. Yep. Met your husband. That's right. In yep. that, or future husband in yep. that process. Yep. yep. But now you go back. That's right. Into into the medical field. Exactly, and it was, and I, I'll be honest. At that time, I thought about naturopathic. I thought about medicine, but my and I think the day and age has changed where people, just because you have an MD behind your name doesn't necessarily mean you are trusted, but realize that this was, I, like, we're talking almost 10 years ago now, right? So things have changed mm-hmm. a lot, but I think there was that hope that if I could get through medical school with this love of what I now know as integrative medicine still in my heart, then I would be successful. But I never realized what a kick in the pants medical school would be. <laughs> so let's unpack. You just made a statement mm-hmm. that always jumps out at me. Integrated medicine. Yeah. Can you unpack what that of course, means? Of course. So it's a term that's actually, I was coined by Dr. Andrew Weil. 
who is a father of integrative medicine. And all that it really means is blending the best of what we know as conventional medicine with what we think of as complementary medicine. And the idea is that you take the best of both worlds in a patient-centric approach to treat the full patient, not to put a Band-Aid on the problem. So what falls under the banner of complementary medicine? So complementary medicine is everything really outside of conventional medicine. So it can span from chiropractic care, acupuncture, homeopathy, all the counseling mechanisms, biofeedback. There's all of the other stuff that people are looking besides, I want to say it, prescription medication, really, mm -hmm. right? And naturopathic care also fits oh, under that umbrella? 100%. Naturopathic care. Now, in nat my sister's a naturopath. She was a pharmacist and then went on to study um, naturopathic medicine. And they get taught everything. By everything, I mean manual manipulations, homeopathy, acupuncture, herbal remedies, nutrition. So it's a huge curriculum. You have within your family yourself, yep. an MD, your sister, an ND, and your parents who are pharmacists. Correct. You have the entire spectrum nearly. Well, and you have your husband. Husband's a chiropractor. Khaled, who's a chiropractor. And my brother-in-law is owns medical clinics. So it's, it's funny. So what is, we're approaching the Christmas season. Take us inside family Christmas dinner with all of those opinions around the table on how to treat patients properly. Do you know what? This conversation comes at a, at a time where I think if we take a step back, why did we all go into the health profession? But by, by, I mean, me, my sister, and my, my husband is because of my sister's health journey. So that's what we need to understand. So the conversations are a lot of the time centered around her own experiences as a patient with the healthcare system and the deficits that she's felt. So just in a, a quick uh, story is that at the age of 19, she was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis a very common condition or a type of inflammatory uh, bowel disease, but hers was extremely aggressive. Within about a year, she had what's known as toxic megacolon. So basically the entire colon could have ruptured. She was taken into surgery. Her entire colon rem was removed. And at the age of 19, she had a bag basically. So you can imagine wow. what that does to a woman's psyche, to anybody's psyche. So we lived together at UBC and She's my hero. She's the most amazing person I've ever encountered. She's um, younger or older than you? Older. We're only older. 19 months apart. Okay. And now for the last 16 years, basically, she's had multiple surgeries. She's one of the only patients in BC to have a spinal cord stimulator for abdominal pain. So she actually has an implantable device in her spinal cord for pain. Wow. So there's been so many negative sequelae because of all of the surgeries and everything else she's been through, but it's because of her journey, she completely realizes, yes, you need the conventional medicine. Yes, you need emergency and all the rest of it. But there were gaps in her care and she's able to be able to fill those gaps with naturopathic medicine. Okay. So that spawned the family's pursuit of healthcare. Is that a, is that a fair statement? Completely. And it, it spawned our, our love-hate relationship with healthcare because it's so different. We all stand on the other side. We all are practitioners in our own way. Mm -hmm. But just two weeks ago, she was at St. Paul's Emerge. So then we're on the other side as patients. Mm -hmm. And you never go in saying, my husband's at this, my sister's at this. You're just, I'm in pain. I'm a patient. I need your help. But she's been, there've been amazing experiences with the healthcare industry. And there's been some not so amazing experiences. And me being on the other side, I've worked in Emerge 
I know what their mentality is like. So I can help fill some gaps for her as to why she might be treated that way as well. But Mm -hmm. uh, everything goes out the window when you're a patient and you're in pain and you need help. And I think for me, this goes back to why I love working at the youth clinic so much. Not that it's an emergency, Mm -hmm. but it's the idea that I can spend time. It's time that we need more of in our healthcare system. And it's nobody's fault. It's just the funding mechanism for better or for worse. But because I have the luxury, quote unquote, of time when I work with my youth, I feel like I can answer some of those questions that they need answering. Okay. You just segued perfectly. (laughs) Thank you for that. But we need to unpack this. So you're a family practitioner MD, yet you're working at a youth clinic. How is this possible? And how did this come to be? And who's funding this youth clinic? So basically, the youth clinic was a vision of my mentor, Dr. Elizabeth Watt, and it was started in the very, very grassroots level about 10 years ago now. So when I joined it, we were working out of one room or two rooms at the hospital, basically. And since then, we've had a number of different moves, finally, to move into our purpose-built building, the foundry here in Abbotsford. That was approximately a year ago. So the youth clinic is funded in a number of ways. Fraser Health helps fund it. The Ministry of Child and Youth and Families help fund it. But yes, we do have to fight for our funding quite a bit. So the youth clinic functions just as a normal walk-in clinic. So we see Hmm. everything. We see sore throats. We see even minor traumas. But at the end of the day, what we end up seeing most of is sexual health and mental health. Because let's not forget the youth clinic is for the ages between 12 and 24. So those are the two biggest things that will get them through our doors. So just to put things into, let me repeat this back to you to make sure I've got it right. We have a clinic that's staffed by medical professionals where youth can just show up, check themselves in, see a doctor. But as it turns out, the majority of the time, you're, you end up dealing in the mental health field as often, if not more, than you're dealing with sore throats, fevers, whatever. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. This is incredible. And how did, how did this clinic come to be? So I think there was a gap, right? If you think about how we, we do really well when it comes to pediatrics, because typically the parents take the onus of that to try to arrange those appointments. And then when you turn to be an adult, let's say after the age of 19, okay, you can hopefully find your way to a walk-in clinic or hopefully you have a family doctor, but what about all the rest of it, right? And Mm -hmm. we tend to forget that adolescence is the time of supreme transition in so many ways. So I think it came to be was because my mentor, Dr. Elizabeth Watt, saw this, this gap in our healthcare system and saw that there was a need for it and fought, fought hard for funding and for space and for time. And She rallied not just physicians, but nurses and social workers. And now it's this entity called the Foundry that we're not just seeing in BC, uh, but we're sorry, not just seeing in Abbotsford, but we're seeing across BC as well. So it's become a model of how we should be treating our youth. Approximately how many practitioners are in touch with the Foundry? Oh my goodness. It's hard to say because we're on the first floor of the Foundry and we have a rotating So there's probably a good 10 to 12 doctors that will come and go throughout and try to pick up shifts throughout the month. Uh, Then we have nurse practitioners. Then we have nurses that deal with a lot of contraception and sexual health. It is. Sorry. I'm there's so much good stuff here. I just don't, I'm you're blowing my brain. Doctors who are quote unquote, picking up shifts. 
are these doctors just getting involved because this is something they're interested in? Or how is a doctor saying, I'm going to start spending some time here? Absolutely, because they're interested in it. Because we in Abbotsford have a residency program, so we train. So after you finish your your four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, you still have to do two years of family practice residency or training, and Abbotsford is one of those sites. Got it. So these residents have to rotate through the youth clinic, and I was a resident. I rotated through the youth clinic, and there's... I never thought I'd want to work with teenagers, let's be honest. Like it just was not my, I, I don't think I could relate. But there was something about working in this environment with a group of passionate people. So we tend to, once the residents graduate, they tend to keep coming back for more. And I was one of those. Right? Wow. So we've got the practitioners we talked about, but then you started to talk about the other people in the building and what else is going on. Keep going on that. So like I said, first floor is just the typical, what you would think of as a youth clinic or a walk-in clinic. But as you start going on to the second floor and third floor, then you're starting to see programs for youth. So we have walk-in counseling. So basically a youth can just walk into our building, go up onto the second floor, and if available, see a counselor right there and then on the spot. So it takes away all of those barriers in terms of, oh, should I, how do I book an appointment or which counselor should I see? And you know, all the stigma around counseling. Or cost. Let's be, yeah. exactly. Let's, our most important one is cost. So there's, there's what we call the, the start team, which is the suicide uh, intervention team that is lived up on the second or so, I think second floor there. There's an adolescent day program for kids that need some extra help during the day. So uh, impact or uh, drug and alcohol abuse counselors are part of our staff, social workers. So it's, it's, this, is, this is the root of multidisciplinary care. This is what we need. This is what our youth need. It must be fair to say that you guys are plugged into all of the major players and assets in the city. I would imagine policing department is involved from time to time, or you're communicating with somebody there. You mentioned there's counseling, there's the medical side. Speak to some of the, the significant people in the community who, are, who you're involved with on a regular basis. Yeah, for sure. So it's the list is so extensive, but uh, if you just kind of hone into the social work realm of things, for example, we have a food bank now on site. So we're, we're directly in affiliation with the Abbotsford food bank. We have kind of um, an area for used clothes and used products. So there's a kind of a thrifting component that's going on too. There's an exercise component. So innovative fitness has been extremely involved with um, helping teach our youth the power of physical activity. I used to run yoga classes for the youth too. Like I could just go on and on. There's every aspect that you can think of. We try to enmesh ourselves in. It's totally holistic. Completely, completely. How often and in what way are you encountering parents? I imagine they're a huge part of this process or can be anyway. Parents are, when a youth walks in with their parent and allows willingly the parent to sit there in the interview, I can usually breathe a sigh of relief because I know someone is watching over them and I know that the youth trust them. And I say the word willingly very carefully because there have been many times where I can sense that that dynamic between the youth and the parent isn't so great. And I often will respectfully ask if the parent can just wait outside so I can speak to the youth one-on-one. And sometimes it doesn't come out the first time or the second time, but by the 10th time, I can start to maybe understand 
where the youth is coming from. And often I'll ask to speak to the parent individually too, because let's not forget, I see the youth for what, 10, 20, 30 minutes, once every week, once every two weeks. These parents are living with these individuals, with their teenagers. So it's not easy on them too, right? They have to deal with it day in and day out. So yes, I listen to the story that the youth present me, but I also have to listen to how the parents are coping. And oftentimes I'll recommend, how are you coping? How is your mental health? Because dealing with somebody who is struggling with their own mental health can be just as exhausting for the caregiver. Okay. You just said something that I want to key in on there. I think most people's perspective of a patient doctor relationship is we're dealing with something on an acute level. You know, you're experiencing something, you go see your doctor, you deal with the issue, and then you may never see them for six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, who knows? But you just made a statement as if you said something to the effect of, you know, I meet a youth and then I'm going to see that youth in a week or three weeks or four weeks or six weeks. That sounds totally foreign to my doctor experience. Once you engage with somebody, what does that look like? So it really depends on why they're engaging with me. So of course, I was actually at the youth clinic. They had no doc yesterday. So I quickly went in to fill in um, and, you know, a patient came in with gastroenteritis, like a stomach flu. Easy peasy, right? She made sure she was hydrated. We figured all what the root cause was and you're going to be fine. You're on your way. And I tell them, you come back if X, Y, and Z, right? Mm -hmm. That's very easy. Had another youth, the next patient came in who had been off of his medications and was starting to feel symptoms of suicidality again, was starting to feel symptoms of anxiety, depression, all the rest of it. I'm not going to see you in four weeks. I want to see you next week to make sure that everything is going okay. And there's time and money for this. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because the doctor's at the youth clinic are paid sessionally. By that, I mean that we're paid per hour. So if I see 15 patients in an hour or one patient in an hour, I'm not incentivized either way. And to be honest, I don't care about that. I, I care about you know giving the time and space to the youth. But the problem now, like anything in healthcare, is that I would love to spend a half an hour or 45 minutes with the patient, but I also have to be respectful that I have a waiting room full of kids who have been waiting for two or three hours. This is a significant difference in this clinic versus every other clinic and doctor's office, correct? 100%. And how did it come to be that this clinic was set up this way financially? Because this to me just makes so much logical sense. I understand these issues are complex and you know difficult to unwind, but just talk to that and how that impacts patient care. The reason it was is because it, because what we see most of all, like I said, it's either, you know, sexual health or it's mental health. Let's put a number on it. Like I would say about 50% is mental health. Not to say that a regular family GP would, is not dealing with mental health. Yes, they are, but you need the time and space. So to give the youth time and space, the doctor also has to be compensated. So by that, I mean, if you are getting paid $35 for a, a typical office visit and you spend an hour with the patient, You're You're losing money. You're not really going to have a doctor who is, that's not the sustainable model. No. But then again, the amount that we are paid per hour is much less than what a walk-in doctor who can see a boatload of patients. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten patients an hour. Correct, correct, correct. So you also, I think, tend to find people who, yes, you need to be compensated appropriately, but you're there. The whole notion is not to make money. You're there because you're there on purpose. You believe in something, right? That's the whole reason mm-hmm. why we're there. Mm-hmm. So otherwise, could you spend five minutes with a patient who has anxiety? Sure. You just, it doesn't take long to write a prescription. It takes a second to sign a prescription. 
all the rest of it takes time. And that's why my TED Talk came about because I was signing And I still do, not to say there's a place, there's time and place for medication, absolutely. But when I see the same story played out over and over and over again, I take a step back going, okay, what more can we do? What more can I do? What more can our schools do? And that's how the emotional literacy talk was kind of came to be, right? So how much of your time are you devoting to the youth health clinic right now? So- Right now, because I'm considered, I don't have a four month old at home, so I guess I'm technically should still be on maternity leave. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, too. so you know, right now, because I, if I try to work at least one shift a week, one shift every two weeks, I'd love to be there every day if I could. It's just childcare that's my biggest uh, thing. But it's between right now, I work primarily at the youth clinic and I work at the breast health clinic, and. Ironically enough, both are sessionally paid. So I think I gravitate towards things that I can spend time with patients. We'll jump to the breast health clinic in a second, but I want to come back to to one more thought or question I had. When you're engaging with these youth and somebody walks in and says, my stomach's hurting or this is hurting or that's hurting, is your radar up for what is possibly a deeper underlying issue as the cause of what's going on? Or how are you, how are you engaging and, and what are you looking for, even if you're not being told something? Or how are you approaching that? Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. So I think this is what, is what you learn through medical school, but you, you also either have it or you don't have it in the sense that when a patient walks in, you, there's this almost a spidey sense that you understand, you can look at the patient, you can start to ask questions. If they're a new patient to me, never met them before, I can tell quite quickly, are you here because you want to address the stomach pain or are you here because there's something more? And the reason I know that is because if I'm asking them about the stomach pain, I might get very flaky answers. Like it's just not fitting. Like for example, the woman that had, or the teenager that had gastroenteritis yesterday or the stomach flu, it was, you know, I was vomiting. I had this, I had that. Okay. It was very black and white, very Mm -hmm. straightforward. Mm -hmm. Whereas some cryptic kind of abdominal pain, as I start to unpeel the layers, I'm thinking, I asked a very simple question. Just tell me what's going on in your life right now. Mm -hmm. I'm new to you. So just tell me, Mm -hmm. what are your stressors? What are you happy about? Who lives with you at home? And then it's their facial expression. They might turn away from me. They might really engage with me. It might be a long pause, all of this kind of stuff. And then I'll use the words, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And then they might have broken up with their boyfriend. They might have been sexually assaulted. They might have all of these different things have come up too. Sometimes you can get it all in the first visit. Sometimes you can't, but you always first have to wear your medical doctor hat before you wear your psychologist hat. Right. right. I don't want to be missing that you have an acute appendicitis because I want to talk about your anxiety, right? Sure, like there's, sure. there's that too. Yeah. So I quickly try to rule out all of my red flags in my head. And then if I'm not sensing anything, I'll give them a plan. Let's do X, Y, and Z. We'll do some blood work. We'll do this. But then I want to talk more about this, right? And leave the door open and they know where to find me. They can always come back for more, Right. And with that, like I said, there are red flags with mental health stuff too. So I need to be careful with that. I need to be careful. Are you feeling suicidal? Are you feeling that um, you are safe? You're not safe with yourself or others, all of that kind of stuff. So I guess it's a bit of a juggling act. And that's what I love about, that's part of the reason why I love medicine is because no patient's ever straightforward. You're always going to get surprised, but sometimes uh, that can also be emotionally draining. So you and our 
I aren't identical in age, but we're both in our 30s. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> we don't need to get specific. When we were youth, number one, there's no way a resource like this existed. Number two, the mental health conversation was not even a conversation. And something that I've gone through as an adult is transforming the way I think about mental health. Going from a place where I believed it was fake, it was made up, it, it, was, a, it was a thing that, that weak people used as an excuse, to now understanding that not only is it real, but it's something that needs to be researched more, discussed more, and it's all around us. And I'm impacted by it in my own life, by people around me. How do your youth patients know that you exist as a resource? And what's the conversation in their mind, given that they've been now raised in a, hopefully a better generation than we were raised in? Are they coming in with shame? Or when the topic of mental health comes up, is it something that they're ready to embrace right away? Or are they in denial? Because I can imagine as a youth, I would have immediately denied. I would have said, no, this is, I'm not weak. There's no way I, I have this. This is not a thing. How are they dealing with this issue versus how we would have potentially dealt with it? Absolutely. So to your first point, how they hear about us, we're, we're very enmeshed into the school system and the counselors at the school know about us. So they will often refer patients our way, even at uh, the University of the Fraser Valley, their counselors know about us. So as a community resource, we've gotten more well-known. Um, and even the family doctors will, will often refer to our clinic if they find that they need help with a certain patient, because respectfully, they might just not have time to deal with it. To your second point about this change in dynamic with the conversation of mental health, yes. it's extremely tricky. So let me give you a story. When I was probably about seven or eight, I started noticing what I know now that I had a lot of, um, I had some anxiety at that time. I had some OCD type tendencies at that time. That later translated into restricted eating behavior. All of this stuff was going on in my background. And now I understand it so well that all of these, this symptomatology is all linked together as a kind of personality type in some ways. But when I told my mom about this, this is now what, you know, 25, whatever years ago, she just said, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. You're fine. Mm -hmm. She just tried to normalize everything yeah. because she did the best that she possibly could. And her, we've also haven't had this conversation now later on. I kind of said, well, why didn't you take me to a place? She said there wasn't a place. There was nothing that existed back then. And in fact, she was so scared of me getting put on some sort of medication that in her mind, her providing her version of counseling was the best possible option. Yes. So I think nowadays, yes, we're very fortunate that we have these resources, but we have to be careful that the pendulum hasn't swung the other way. And by that, I mean that we start to pathologize or make a disease out of any abnormal emotion. Interesting. So by this, I mean, it's okay to feel anxious. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel scared. All of this stuff is okay. It doesn't mean that you have depression. It doesn't mean that you have anxiety. Because we've got to realize that the criteria that you need to meet depression is a checklist. The criteria for anxiety is a checklist. And you might meet that checklist one day and not the other day. Interesting. To meet, to actually have a fully fledged you know, diagnosis, yes, you have to have those symptoms for more than two weeks, 
But I think we've become so on board with mental health that by telling everyone, oh, it's okay, you have depression, we also have to be careful that we're not putting a label on their head. So some, this I was listening to actually a great podcast the other day, and um, a professional in this field was saying, it's okay just to say that I feel stuck. Right now, I feel stuck. That's good. And that's okay. And I often tell that to the youth too. But we also have to realize that these youth walk in our doors with so much often with so much baggage and such a story that it's their story that needs unpacking. You need to hear about their upbringing. You have to hear about their lack of a stable home. You have to hear about their encounters with abuse to understand that, of course, you have the feelings that you do, but it doesn't mean you need to be a victim to those feelings. Is it fair to say that in your one of the challenges in assessing a patient who's a youth versus assessing a patient who's not is that there's hormones at play as well and bodies are changing and there's that whole spectrum that could also be impacting things. Is that, a, is that something that is relevant to the conversation? There is absolutely. And I think more than even just the hormones and body changing is that the brain is not fully developed. Your brain doesn't get fully developed to the age of 21. And by that, I mean your actual prefrontal cortex, which is what helps you with executive planning and decision-making that idea that you can assess a situation, think about it rationally, and then make a decision. So impulse control for youth is not going to be where it is for an adult at the age of 35 or 40, right? Right. And hence why it's so much easier to make poorer choices as a youth, um, whether it be for drugs and alcohol or sex or all the rest of it too. So, and there's also a very normal phase of experimentation. And if you don't experiment really, how do you learn? So there's all of that at play too. And they're also trying to find their own identity, right? They're also trying to figure out where, my favorite question, like I mentioned in the TED Talk, is asking, well, what do you want to be? Like, where do you imagine yourself? And sometimes I'll get these blank faces like, well, what? Like, I'm going to be 30 or 40 one day? Because they haven't even stepped outside the space they're in. Not at all. Whatever they're in is all there is right now. Exactly. They live in that, like, they're very present, right? So, and realize that at the youth clinic, we see between the ages of 12, to 24. A lot happens between the ages of 12 and 24, right? Yep, yep, that's fair. Right? So I, if I see a 13 or 14 year old who has become sexually active and is trying to figure all of that out, that's a very different conversation than someone who is 19, 20, 21, 22, right? Mm-hmm. And all of the considerations with regards to that. So yeah, it's a complex discussion. Wow. Fascinating. We've only scratched the surface there, but I, you alluded to something else earlier that I, that I do also want to uh, get to with you. You mentioned you spend time in the breast health clinic. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, I love it. I love the breast health clinic. So very similar to the youth clinic is that it, once again, it's healthcare innovation in the sense that we need to change something. So once again, there was a problem with the way that women were being screened and treated and um, triaged with regards to their breast health, right? Mm-hmm. So you can imagine uh, the percentage is still that many of the family doctors are male and sometimes a female patient wouldn't feel comfortable discussing their breast health complaints with their male physician. Fair enough. We often know as well that um, regular breast exams 
are now not standard of practice unless a woman has a complaint of some sort. So there isn't that chance to have a dialogue with a healthcare practitioner as to what should I be looking for and what are my concerns in my family history? Enter the breast health clinic. So the breast health clinic is situated at the hospital on the first floor. And once again, we're a team. We're a team of physicians. We're a team of nurses that go in and basically treat, and surgeons, I should say, that treat from the time of diagnosis to the time of um, treatment for breast cancer and everything in between. So I'm one of the four female family physicians trained in breast health at the breast care center, along with two female surgeons and a host of female nurses that work there. And we see everything breast related from lumps to breast pain, to um, skin related breast changes, to any mammogram recalls. If there is something that's looking sinister or suspicious, we will arrange the biopsies. I will break the news to the patient as to what is happening, whether it be that they are fine or whether it be that they actually need more treatment or if they have breast cancer. And on my slate of uh, when I go in every week of 16, 17 patients, at least once or twice, I'll have to walk into the room of a patient I've never met before because we're a rotating group of doctors and sit down with them and tell them that they have breast cancer. Wow. And it is, I've done it hundreds of times now and it never, how can it ever get easier? How can it ever get easier that you, I just had this conversation. I just worked two days ago and we're hitting Christmas time soon. And you were telling somebody, it's actually, if I might give my opinion here, it might be somewhat worse to tell a patient that you have a very, very suspicious lump, but we can't arrange a biopsy for another week or another 10 days. Like, let's be honest that, how do you live with that? Right. Okay. You just went into a whole... You just went into a whole nether rabbit hole that I want to... So my first thought when you say that is, what are you doing for yourself when you're delivering this kind of news and then you're going home to your family at the end of the day? I mean, you just dropped a bomb in somebody's life. It's not your bomb. You didn't make the bomb, but you were the one who had to deliver the news. How are you unpacking that in your mind and living with that? I wish I had a good answer. I wish I, wish I was numb to it by now. And I think that would be a bad sign if I was, but I'm not. Um, even though I've had experience, I'll be honest, when I go home, I see the faces of the women that I've broken the news to. I see the faces of their partners and that's what I think about. But the only thing that gives me solace or hope or feeling like I'm making a difference is the way that I break the news to them. If I can make that moment even a little bit easier for them, then that's what I hang on to. So even though I will tell them they teach, they, they try to train you a little bit for this, although a lot of it you have to learn by yourself, is that you never, you never beat around the bush. You never hum and haw. When you go into the room, they're often sitting in the room for a good 5, 10, 15 minutes. And this sure. room is covered with breast cancer paraphernalia. Yeah. So they're already on edge. Oh, yeah. They're often with somebody there. And uh, I'll quickly introduce myself. I'll quickly tell them, you know, I've read through your chart just so that they know that I know what I'm talking about. And then I'll get straight to it. I'll use the, there's often different schools of thought. Do you use the word cancer? Do you not? Well, cancer is cancer. Use the word, be blunt about it in the sense, but then jump right to the point that yes, you have breast cancer, but you are in the right spot. You are in the spot that you can be treated. You're trying to provide hope. Exactly. Immediately. Exactly. Right away. That this is for us as women, this is one in eight of us. Yes. Unfortunately, you are the one, right? 
but there's one in eight. Are we one of eight in Canada? In Canada, yeah. That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And it's the same feeling in my gut that I get with youth that why can't I do more than write a prescription? When I see the biopsy reports, I always feel, why can't we do more? How do we prevent this? And I, of course, there is so much conversation, people a lot smarter than I'll ever be who are doing the appropriate kind of research. But you start to think about lifestyle and genetics and environment and all the rest of it of how, mm-hmm. why is this such an issue for us, right? Yeah, it's, so. a, it's a convoluted conversation and there isn't one thing and it could be environment, diet, habits. I mean, there must be other places in the world that don't have this rate of breast cancer. And then you start to dig into the whole complex discussion about mammography and the frequency of mammography and us detecting things that we might have not even detected before. And the idea of overdiagnosis. There's there's so much there to unpack too, which can be a slippery slope uh, because I literally every task force has a different notion as when we should best screen. So there's not even a good solid consensus per se. Um, If you look across Canada or even different uh, regions in the world as to how often you should be having mammograms and all the rest of it. So we have done our best by saying, okay, every two years, if you don't have a family history, but at the end of the day, we know that mammograms can also lead you up the garden path in the sense of having a ton of biopsies and testing that actually turn out to be a nothing and in the realm of it cause women a ton of anxiety. Yes. So how do you how do you rationalize that? Yes, we are helping some, but for for a large proportion of them, they're having all these biopsies and thankfully they're okay, but the stress of that time period put a number on that. I don't know, right? It's fair to say say yes or no if this is true or not, but this is all in the name of prevention. Yes. Which is actually something unique to the medical field. Also true? Also true. There's no easy answers there. Mm -mm. How are you traversing these issues? So circle back to something we alluded to earlier. Your husband, Cal, is a chiropractor. Your sister is a naturopathic doctor. You're an MD. Your parents are um, pharmacists. You've got the full spectrum in your brain, and I'm sure that sometimes the way you think doesn't always align with the standard MD field or what you're supposed to think or, you know, what you're told to say. How are you navigating that when you're in these crucible moments and determining what you recommend or what you say to a patient or or how you go about best practicing with the people you're trying to love and care for? I think I feel undereducated. I'll be honest. Even though I do have the full, we have the full realm in our household, the way that I've been trained as an MD still makes me feel like I'm at a loss. Mm. And the reason for that is because I feel like I'm missing this whole other segment of knowledge that could potentially help patients. But even more than that, coming back to my pyramid, is that forget nutrition, forget exercise, forget all of these other alternative therapies. If I could focus on one thing, it keeps coming back to mental health. You just can't escape that. I couldn't escape it. My patients can't escape it. And I think if I could choose more training in any one of those fields, it would be more in, you know, realms like cognitive behavioral therapy, counseling. But I also have to realize that I'm, I'm not a counselor. That's not what I've been Mm -hmm. trained to do, but I doesn't mean that I don't recognize the importance of it. So I think for me in my future, I want to do more training and there is a program actually, it's a two-year program, but it's through, um, it's through the U.S. for integrative medicine where family practice physicians can go and get trained in the best of the best of 
of what we call complementary and alternative medicine, but it's the evidence-based stuff of CAM. The only problem is that say if I go and do my two years of training, I'll come back to Canada and then what? There is no funding for it. There is no, I'm not prepared to open a private clinic. Then you start going to the discussion public versus private. Mm -hmm. And I don't, that's a tricky, tricky conversation. Yeah. The system is designed to function a particular way and the system needs to be efficient, but efficiency doesn't always mean that we're hitting every patient where they need to be hit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Medicine's really good at trying to keep you alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's trying to rule out red flags, sure. trying to diagnose diagnosable conditions, but, but I'm not going to be the only one to say that conventional medicine has gaps. We all know it does. And that's why people seek out rightfully so other therapies. But the problem becomes is that unlike when you see a physician, you kind of know when you go to a clinic, you know what you're going to see, you know what you're going to get. The doctor's going to ask you a bunch of questions, might do a physical exam. You might leave with a prescription. Okay. For better or for worse, that's your experience. If you see 10 chiropractors, if you see 10 naturopaths, you're often going to get 10 different experiences. Mm-hmm. And right there lies the problem. In our own household, we've fallen into, I would say it's probably accurate for me to say I don't have a family, I don't have a doctor. I do have a doctor in that I have a friend who's a doctor. And when I have something really bad, like I've broken something or, you know, it's very obvious, then, you know, I will use my doctor in this circumstance, my friend, to get the treatment I need. But for the things that aren't obvious, we have fallen into this habit. Sometimes I think it's good. Sometimes I think it's bad of doing the research for ourselves and self-diagnosing. Because the frustration is that when you go to one particular person in one particular field, you're not necessarily getting the full scope. And nor is it reasonable or fair to expect that person to be able to give you the full scope. But holistic treatment requires the full scope sometimes. You have to look at nutrition. You have to look at mental health. You have to look at exercise. You have to be aware of, you know, what a physiotherapist can do versus what a chiropractor can do. And so it's frustrating. I have found myself frustrated. I know we've been frustrated in our health journey in that when you have a conversation with one particular individual, you know you're only getting advice from one particular perspective. And that isn't always what's required. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, and we come back to that conversation of time, right? Without spending time with somebody, how do you know all the facets of their life? You just don't, right? And I think that's once again why I, why I gravitate to working at the youth clinic, because even if it's not me, I hear from the social worker, I hear from the counselor, I hear from the nurse, and all of that puts a picture together, right? And it just makes treating them that much easier if I know what's happening in their life. Hmm. Okay, let's switch gears. Okay. We crushed that. We no, did kidding. We did that the best we possibly could. There's nothing else we could ever say. We've exhausted it. You are a mom. Yes. You have a four-month-old. Yes. We are currently on a nursing break. <laughs> yes. You have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Yes. And you have this career. Yes. And you probably have to make dinner <laughs> from time to time or vacuum, the, or vacuum the house or do laundry or whatever. Mm-hmm. How in the hell does this work? So motherhood's been my greatest gift and my greatest teacher. Everyone who knew me in medical school knew that I talked about one thing only, and it was to be a mom, to be a mom, to be a mom. That's all I ever wanted. And I wonder if it's because I had this notion that maternity leave would be like a break. (laughs) So Mm. I I thought maybe that's why I wanted to be a mom. But uh, like we had, you'd alluded to as well, um, 
quickly after residency, I finished my residency and six weeks afterwards, I was pregnant with Ishan, my first child, and it was go time. That's all I wanted. I spent that year researching and I was going to be, I read basically every book I could get my hands on, on motherhood and the best things to buy. But as any rookie mom, of course, no book ever trains you for a child that doesn't sleep and breastfeeding problems. You mean you and, didn't perfectly sleep train well, yeah, all your children? All, exactly. Speak, given you that I'm completely failed. sleep deprived right now, right? <laughs> exactly. So, and I think for the first time, motherhood was not just an intellectual hit. It was an emotional hit. Mm. I'm used to having intellectual hits are okay. You know, you can, you can get a B on a paper or you can not do so well on an exam or whatever the case might be. But I'd never had an emotional hit before. And by that, I mean the fact that something, this baby was responding to me as if I wasn't a good enough mother. Mm. And it made me feel like, would I ever be a good enough mother? Because I didn't feel that quote unquote bond that you were supposed to feel. You know, all of that were stuff. You, were you a natural? I Like no. some women, you know what I mean? Some women, they would explain the first as if like, it's like I've done this my entire life. It's like riding a bike. And then I know some women would say the opposite. Like this was a foreign experience for me. How would you put yourself in that spectrum? He, I, you know what? Um, it was like walking through a cloud. Parts mm. were blissful and parts were completely hazy. You know, it felt like I was on cloud nine, but yet I didn't know where I was going. If that makes any sense. That's very good. That, that's I think that's very yeah, good. That's exactly the analogy. So, I'm going to write that down yeah. actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, and no, and for the first time in my life, no book or my mind couldn't get me out of it. Yeah. And I tried and I tried so hard. And this is, will sound crazy, but between nursing sessions, I actually would schedule meditation. Cause I knew, I knew on paper that I needed to do yoga and meditate and do all this stuff for me. Were you practicing meditation already at oh, that 100%. point in your life? Oh, 100%. Yeah. You are a guru. No, but but meditation doesn't work if you're trying to do it for like a minute between switching breaths and, you know what I mean? Like totally. that doesn't work. It takes time so, to get in. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly. Like it doesn't work to schedule your yoga and get anxious while it's loading on the laptop. <laughs> like that kind of, that's the opposite of what you should be doing. So all of this stuff I laugh about in retrospect, but man, did I hit the wall. Man, did I hit the wall because, oh, I can't even begin to tell you. I, I was on my knees, figuratively, literally all the rest of it. I, I was at my rock, rock, rock bottom and I didn't open. Of course, my husband knew what was going on to some extent. My family knew what was going on to some extent, but once again, very much, it's okay. It's going to get better. Totally. Postpartum's normal. You just had a baby. It's the tools they have in the bag. That uh, uh, a very dear friend of mine has explained it to me that way when talking about, you know, how our parents have dealt with us. It's easy to harbor bitterness or to say they screwed up or whatever, but when you realize that they had a hammer and a wrench and that's all they had. Mm -hmm. And today we have hammers and wrenches and screwdrivers and so way more tools than we had. Mm -hmm. So we might approach the conversation differently, but yeah. they're just yeah. doing what they've always known how to do because that's the tools they've always had. And they're doing it out of love and they're doing it and just, I'm sure I'm going to screw my kids up bad too. Like I, cause you do the best that you can, but so Sometimes it's the hardest for family to see what you're going through because they just want to see the version that they know of you, not the version that you are now, which was the worst of myself. I'll share a story, which is a little bit, I've never actually told this to anybody before, but I was driving one day and uh, I had the split second thought that 
what if I just drove into the other lane and then it would all be over? Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of stuff I talk with to the youth I work with. Yes. This is the kind of stuff I am comfortable talking about. But when I had that thought and when I realized that, oh boy, I better take a step back for myself because that kind of thought should not bring me peace. It should bring me fear in some ways that I've reached that point, right? And that's what sleep deprivation and emotional burnout and even intellectual burnout will do to you. So I actually reached out to a good friend who's a nurse at the youth clinic. Mm -hmm. And I texted her one day and I said, I think I need some help here. And I spoke with my mentor, Dr. Watt, and uh, my good friend, Joanne, who's the nurse at the youth clinic. And she said, yeah, you, this is, you need some help here. So I wasn't comfortable enough to go to my family doctor because she's a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where ego comes into play. Sure. This is where I want to be the super mom. I don't want to have any of this stuff going on. So I called, we actually are very fortunate. I think, I don't know if we have it in other provinces, but in BC, we have a confidential physician's helpline or health line. Yeah. So any physician and their family can call this line and basically access help for anything, physical, mental, anything. For physicians only. For only physicians and their spouses. Got it. So I called this and I got put through to an intake worker. And even as they're doing the intake, I'm thinking, actually, I'm fine. Actually, I'm good. I I don't need help. I'm good. I just made a call. Like, I don't don't need help. What am I doing? I'm fine. Everything's fine. (laughs) Everything is blissful. So then, of course, the doc calls me and I'm trying to have a very professional conversation. You know, according to the DSM-5 criteria, (laughs) I have X, Y, and Z. Because we are both doctors here. (laughs) So I'm not hot. So he's like, Shahana, like, just, just take it easy, first of all. And second of all, I think you're going to need some help. And I said, no, I don't need help. I know what I have. I've got postpartum anxiety. Perfect. I'm done. He's like, no, you're going to need to talk to somebody. You might need to consider some medication. And I said, absolutely not. Because here I am writing it out for every patient I see, not every, but a lot of them. But when my name was at the top of that prescription pad, are you kidding me? I'm too good for that. And that's rock bottom. It's just fascinating. Like, so what do you think is going on in the human brain? I, this absolutely is not something that only physicians or you, mm-hmm. you deal with. I mean, I, I can say in my own life, I have also dealt with this. For some reason, in whatever area that we are deemed to be the professional, there's this mental block where we cannot suffer with that challenge. And the irony is, is we're helping people with these things every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there isn't, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I'm just, I'm fascinated by that. And, and I know that that can't, that can't be the best of what there is. We're better than this. We've got to get past that. I think part of it too, is because it's a self-protective mechanism, right? If you feel that if I need to help other people, well, how can I be down and out? I need to be in a role that I can lift other people up. I didn't mean to get swept under the current, but we're all susceptible. We're all human, right? Mm -hmm. And then the ego part comes from the fact that like it or not, mental health still is associated with the weakness, Yeah, right? There is, if you just tried harder, if you just thought CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy to your way out of this, do more yoga, do more meditation, eat better, drink more fish oil, whatever, you know, make it go away. Yeah. And it, it's not that easy. And this, the other piece too, is that it doesn't have to be We use mental health, but mental health can just be, I'm having a really tough day. I'm having a really tough week. When are we going to start to say that that is okay? Because as a society, we never go to, you ask, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing perfect. I'm doing fine. We're approaching the Christmas holidays. 
If you ask somebody, how are you actually doing? They're melting down. Exactly. Yeah. But do we have to say that you have quote unquote depression needed medication? No. Where is the middle ground? Yeah. We've stopped having real conversations because all we want to do is present a, a facade of our life on social media that everything is perfect. And it's not. Don't go there. Don't take me to social media. I don't <laughs> want to do it today. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Stop it, Shahana. Let's rewind, <laughs> rewind. <laughs> you, you and I, so we got to go for coffee a few weeks ago as I was chasing and pursuing you and begging you to come on the show and among other things. I, we were chatting. We had a great chat for two hours and you said something that stuck out to me and I want to take us back to that moment and just shut up and listen to you talk if that's okay. Sure. You said something like, at some point in time, we, as in you and Khaled, needed to give you a designation. And your designation was you were the CEO of your home. And this came in the context of a conversation where we were discussing gender roles and how to make careers work and have people feel validated and not rolled over and further context was is that you're talking from a perspective where two people have significant careers and yet you have a uterus and three children and i was coming at it from the perspective where i have three children my wife's career has been to stay home and raise the children and i've gone out and conquered while she's done that and then you just raised this concept of ceo of the home and i went that's fascinating can you just take off on that yes it's funny there's a actually a very important role model, Rachel Hollis. She's written a really girl, just wash your face, a kind of book. And she had mentioned in one of her podcasts that when you have something deep within your heart that just keeps speaking to you, don't ignore it. And that's exactly what I feel the CEO of the house concept is. So let me tell you more. So like you mentioned, I have three boys, all boys, thank you. <laughs> uh, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a four-month-old. And it was our choice to have a what I would think of as a larger family now. And like you said, for better or for worse, there is a time frame that you have to make these decisions as to when to start your family. And, you know, typically it's in your late 20s, mid-30s, whatever it happens to be. There's also a choice that you as a woman can make as to whether you want to stay home or whether you want to re-enter the workforce. But that's a very black and white decision. And what often after spending 10 years or 11 years in the educational system earning this degree, I was spit out with, yes, an MD, but that means nothing. An MD means nothing unless you're really happy practicing in a regular family practice office. And that for me, I'm, that's not my happiness. That's not my group, right? So here I am a mom, here I am an MD behind my name, but I still don't know what I want to do. And if that sounds to me ironic enough, yes, I enjoy the youth clinic and yes, I enjoy breast health, but there's something in my heart, in my soul that I want to create something. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to create something sustainable for women, for moms especially, that they can start to embrace who they are, their sense of time, their identity, and give them purpose. And I think a lot of women who start companies kind of start with this sort of notion in mind because they have felt that loss, so they want to give it to others. So once again, I want to go into uncharted territory with this CEO of the house, which by the why I should say is a concept that I came up with in the sense that it speaks to the fact that I'm not just a stay-at-home mom. Don't you hate that when somebody asks me that? Oh, I cringe. What are you? 
Oh, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Don't say that. Take the just out of there. You are doing being at home, I got to go, I got to go to work for three hours yesterday and I came back invigorated. I was happier. I love my kids so much, but it is hard, hard, hard work. And the reason the CEO of the house idea came up for me is that my husband bought a book. I won't say the name of the book, but it was with the theme of taking charge of your mornings, let's say, right? How do you start to utilize the four or five a.m. kind of slot as a, a time that you can really supercharge yourself. With. You don't want to say the name of the book because it's controversial or you just can't? No, just because I don't want to. I, I, I like the concept of the book, but I think it was missing from a, got it. a female perspective. I got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, got it. So you want to use what what's yeah, good. Like, and, yeah, exactly. So, you know, so my husband was all like charged up about this book that, oh yeah, it's like the, whatever, like this hour of power in the morning that I'm going to meditate, I'm going to work out and I'm going to journal. Sure. Oh, this sounds amazing. But I looked at him, I said, guess what? I've been doing this for, for not just four months. All my kids were horrible sleepers, but I've been up at 2 a.m., at right. 3 a.m., at 5 a.m., I've been doing this hour of power, except I've been nursing while I've been doing it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club, right? Yeah. And it's so ironic is that we have all of these books for executives and CEOs and entrepreneurs of how to unlock the tools and tactics to make yourself the most successful version that you can. But what's the biggest difference between an entrepreneur, business person, CEO, and a mom? What's the biggest difference? I would say the size of the humans you're talking yeah, to. <laughs> correct. <laughs> <laughs> Their voices. <laughs> but it's this is what I've come up with. It's the ownership of time. Hmm. You ask, look at yourself. You might have a list of things that you want to do today. Yeah, I scheduled this exactly where I wanted it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I have three little munchkins at home. We might want to have breakfast, but guess what? There is a bazillion other things that happen, like someone has to go to the bathroom and this and that, and there's a tantrum and there's a house to clean up. Nothing that I want to happen at a certain time will ever happen at the certain time. It's the ultimate ask of responsibility and flexibility. You have to be so flexible as a mom because that time is not your time. It's someone else's time. You are serving those other people. If you want, if you're hungry and you want to eat at one o'clock and you have three young kids, ask any mom. Talk, it's, I find it this intermittent fasting craze hilarious because I talked to another mom <laughs> friend of mine. She's like, we've been fasting for all this time because we're moms, right? That's incredible. <laughs> right? This is not new, people. This is not new. We just do this. Or you just grab the kids off the stuff off the kid's plate. And I want to be careful when I say CEO of the house as a gender specific thing, because a lot of my friends who are females and are out at work, it's their husbands that stay at home. So it doesn't sure. have to be man Absolutely. or woman. Whoever... Just know that if you're staying at home, it's a lot more than raising kids. It's conducting everything else behind the scenes. Just like we talked about with your wife, you have a beautiful home here. Who's actually orchestrating all of this? Who's putting food in the fridge? Who's cooking dinner? Who's keeping it clean? Who's buying gifts for the teachers? Well, anybody who's in our life knows exactly who that is. And they know it's not me. I will say this, this conversation. So my kids are 12, 10 and eight. And I would say my level of awareness of this topic and my sensitivity to it up until I'll be gracious to myself, let's say five, six years ago, that's being gracious was very poor. And I'm awakening to the significance of 
this CEO of the house concept. And you know, over the last few years, I you know become more aware, and I believe that I've been more appreciative and understanding, and just aware of the significant role that my wife has played in all of our lives. But my conversation with you a few weeks back, you really struck a chord and you put language to it in a way that I'd never heard language to it before. And I think it's incredibly valuable. Um, and yeah, I, I don't have anything else to say other than that. I'm, I, I think I would put myself in the camp of I am in the group of people that took some things for granted and have been on a journey walking myself out of that going, no, Andrew, you got to go out every day and conquer and never think for a second about what was going on in behind you and just coming to the understanding of how significant that is. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Because if we loop it back to our conversation at the youth clinic as well, a question I often ask the youth is, tell me about your home, who lives in the home, what does family look like to you? And this is the response I often get. What family? What do you mean? What's a typical upbringing? Like I said, just mom, dad, siblings, they can't relate. They can't relate because they might have, they might not know their parents. They might be in the foster care system. They might be out on a youth agreement. They might have had such conflict with their parents, like all of this stuff of what, so what your wife gave your children, what you've given your children is stability. And I think sometimes we measure what we give to our kids as quality time but it's actually quantity of time. Kids don't suddenly say, I, let's really bond right now because I feel like bonding. You just have to be there yes, and hope to Absolutely. God that they want to bond with you. It's like fishing. You got to have the line in <laughs> yes. the water all day and you'll probably catch a fish, but you can't just go, oh, there's a fish right there, throw the line in and hit it. That line's got to be in there for a long, long time in order to get what you're looking for. But if you're not there waiting, hoping that you're going to catch something, someone else is going to be there. And you better have someone else that you trust, like your spouse, like a good caregiver, whatever the case might be. So I think this is what the CEO of the house, the man or the woman, whoever it happens to be, will grapple with because it's time. Kids need time. And I've, because we want everything to be instant. Just my kids are two and four. So going pee and brushing the teeth is the hardest and changing them is the hardest thing we have to do because, you know, there's too many distractions. But sometimes it's just like waiting for a magical bird to appear. You just have to be really quiet and wait because the more that you force it on them, they can sense your angst and apprehension and they will just run away from you. Whereas my husband has the advantage of really honing in on the quality time. He might not be able to be there for the quantity that he wants to be there, but when he is there, he's all about having these quality experiences. <laughs> so sometimes we have these very productive conversations about that. Um, you mean you mean like fun dad? <laughs> fun dad. I get called fun dad in my yes. house. Yes, exactly, exactly, right? So, and that's the thing too, like kids go through transitions. Sometimes they're going to be very mummy-centric. Sometimes they're going to be very daddy-centric. But this is something that all moms, especially, I want you to hear is that give your kids the best of you, not the rest of you. Give your kids the best of you, not the rest of you. And by that, I mean, you do have to learn for your comfort level when it's okay to say, I need to go. I need to go and take 10 minutes to go for a walk 
or to exercise or do whatever it takes or lock yourself in the bathroom for two minutes just to breathe. And it's a luxury in our day and age to have childcare. Like I have help and I want to be 100% transparent that I have childcare help at home. And that there is no way that I could even be sitting here with three kids who are not in the school system and have this conversation. So even to have help means that you need to be of a certain economic standing. So all, so why should it be that if you have a certain socioeconomic status that you should be able to achieve things? That's not right either. Mm -hmm. Right? So all the more credit for the moms who are doing it a hundred percent on their own. Like they are the CEOs of the house and they deserve that title and that stance and that credit. And by creating this, which I don't know what it's going to look like, a book, a podcast, modules, things are in the works, but I want to create a community of women that feel as empowered as I do. Because right now I'm first a mom, second, I'm a doctor, but first I spend 99.9% of my house putting out at home, putting out fires and trying to be the best mom I can be. It's very well said. Along this line, these lines still, there must be a conflict that only a woman experiences. I realize that we can have men and women play the, you know, the stay-at-home role or the CEO role. But to this point in our evolution anyway, we still only have women giving birth. So can you speak to the conflict of as a woman who wanted to pursue a career, yet there's just still a practicality of having to carry a child for nine months give birth, breastfeed, I guess, should you choose that, feed the child in some way and just be present for an infant. That's a conversation that just a man is not capable or does not need to have in their brain. How does that, how does that play out in your mind and how, how does that continue to play out in your mind? So I think it goes back to knowing your options. Just be educated. We're, uh, we're in this society right now. Luckily, a woman does have options for better or for worse. And by that, I mean, if you are choosing a career like I did, that's going to take you 10, 11, 12 years to complete, maybe the best thing that you want to do is freeze your eggs. So that way, you know, it's like having just a safety deposit box. Like, you know, everything is there. It's ready to go. And because we're taking all of this into account by saying that you have a career and you found somebody by the age of late 20s, early 30s, that's that's a fluke if that's the possibility, right? And we're also saying that you are in a heterosexual relationship. Maybe you're not. Maybe you don't want a partner. Maybe, and I've had friends who just want to do this by themselves and that's okay. But I think you can't fool yourself into thinking that I can be spit out of this law degree, medicine, entrepreneurial, whatever the case might be at 35, 36, 37 and hope like that, that you are going to get pregnant. Right. Don't fool yourself into, don't, don't think that, right? You might be the lucky one. And I think sometimes with social media, with celebrities, we see women at 41, 44, 50 having Mm -hmm. babies thinking, oh, this is easy peasy. And we don't realize that maybe they're using someone else's egg. Maybe they're using IVF. These treatments cost a lot of money, right? So this is where I think we have to start having these conversations earlier on with our daughters that never feel like you don't need to give in to your dreams, follow your heart, follow your dreams. But if your goal is to conceive it, to carry a child, then maybe your best bet is X, Y, or Z, freezing your eggs, whatever. Yeah, physiologically, your body wants to carry a child from late teens to 30. That's right. That's, that, right. That, that's what it wants that's to do. Right. And, and therein lies the conflict and the rub. And let's be honest too, just because you freeze your eggs and now you're saying, okay, I'm ready to be a mom at 41. 
we often forget to have the conversation about, well, carrying a pregnancy at 41 and being a mom at 42. Having the energy. (laughs) Having the energy, having all of that sort of stuff. So you might have your life, your bank books all in order and feel like, okay, I have enough money for a child. But what about the energy? What about the supports? All of that kind of stuff too. So it... I have this, and this is the opposite conversation in some ways, but it's related to the female youth that come in uh, and we discuss birth control because I often tell them, I said, although it takes two people, you at the end of the day are going to be left making a decision. You might love your partner to bits, but let me be honest. This is you. This is your body. I didn't make it this way. It's the way that it is. So own it now before you come to me in tears going, what are we going to do, right? So it's really hard for younger women and any women, I should say, to make these kind of uh, decisions, but this is life. And that's what I mean is to be realistic about it. So um, know your options, be realistic. So much of what we've discussed today was the foundation, I believe, for your pyramid philosophy, which we've scratched the surface of, but actually didn't really get into in, in, in great depth. And you know, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I would like you to just share a little bit about that. So I think this came out once again, a lot of things for me come out of frustration, but it came out of frustration because I was trying to figure out without having this full on integrative medicine training, like I spoke about before, how could I summarize my belief system about not just medicine, but about health in general? So it was after I went through my own struggles with postpartum anxiety and depression that I realized, okay, foundation has to be get the mind right. I don't call it mental health for a reason. I call it healthy thinking. It sounds juvenile in some senses, but it really means just getting your mind right or knowing your thought processes for better or for worse. Know what pitfalls you fall into. Know your thinking traps. And then the second part of that foundation is connection. Because I'll be honest with you, I also work in a regular family practice office and I'll have someone coming in for heartburn, let's say, that would take a, that's a 30 second appointment. Here's some antacids on your way, you're done. But if I start asking them, well, tell me about this and tell me about that. I'll find out that their child is involved in substances, that they have a dysfunctional marriage, that because of all of that, they tend to cope by eating. They're eating too late at night. They're drinking too much. They're smoking. Well, no wonder you're having acid reflux, right? So it's all about that. It's about the stories and that the word connect deeply for me encompasses the story behind the patient. Who are you connecting with? in your life? What is your marriage looking like? Because if you're coming back home to a dysfunctional marriage, you could be eating all the, you know, the the best food in the world, but it's not going to help solve that inner angst that you have, right? You move up the pyramid and you simply, I just call it decisions. And I was standing, the the reason this came up is I was standing in a Starbucks line and the woman in front of me was trying to decide, she was having this conversation with her friend saying, oh, what should I eat today? Should I eat the healthier choice at Starbucks, whatever that happens to be, or should I go for the unhealthy choice? And it made me realize that health is not health. Health is decisions. Hmm. It's the decisions that we make every day. Absolutely. It's the decision when you're in the grocery aisle as to, are you going to shop the perimeter or are you going to go in between the aisles? (laughs) Is it making that phone call for pizza? Is it like, what are you putting in your kids' lunch boxes? And no one is perfect, but what do you decide in that moment is going to determine your life? right? Your, your life is a culmination of all of those small Starbucks decisions. 
do you want the extra syrup or not? Whatever the case might be, right? That's what I believe. So stop focusing on what exactly you're going to eat or how much exercise you're going to get, but just make one good decision for yourself every day. That's all I ask. One good decision. You're going to get about 2,500 applications for new patients (laughs) after people listen to this. Because what, I mean, I knew this to be true of you, but, but what comes out of your mouth, the the depth to your thoughts and the way you think through your practice and how you help people is just, it's so refreshing. And I know that you're develop, going to develop a fan base. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan, but your, your fan base is going to grow significantly uh, because of what just came out of your mouth for the last, you know, hour and a half or whatever <laughs> we've, we've done here. So it's time to wrap things up. You've been more than generous with your time. Something I'm really excited to do on the podcast is to obviously find people like you. And I think we've done a tremendous job with you today in that we've truly found someone who's everyday amazing, where not enough people know about you. We've shone the light on what you're doing and it's incredible what you're doing. So thank you for what you're, you're doing in the community. But now you get the platform for a few minutes and to tell us about someone, you know, who needs to have that spotlight because they're amazing. So fire away. Well, thank you so much for the kind words too. So for me, I I have to honor my mentor, Dr. Elizabeth Watt. She is the reason why I've become the kind of physician I am today, especially working with the youth. So Dr. Elizabeth Watt is her name. She um, founded the Abbotsford Youth Health Center here in Abbotsford. She is the pioneer, the visionary. I've worked with her for a number of years And every time I work with her, I'm just blown away by her humility. She is, she is the epitome of service beyond self. She comes to the youth clinic and she does not get paid. She volunteers her time just to be there. She is the ultimate advocate for our youth. She cares beyond measure. She has her own health concerns and never once does she let that hold her back. She's the mom of the youth clinic. She's so caring She actually works at the women's penitentiary here. So she's used to dealing with uh, Mm -hmm. incarcerated women, very, very vulnerable populations. But she was one of the first ones to teach me in not even such a um, black and white way, but just to tell me the importance of the story behind the patient. And it's because of her that even working with incarcerated women, you start to realize that they all have a story. They all got there because of a purpose and a reason. And um, she treats everyone equally. So I think it's because of her that we have the foundry here in Abbotsford today. And I can think of no more of an amazing person than her. Wow. And what year did that, did the, was the foundry founded? Founded in 2018, just last year. It opened its doors. Yep. So Dr. Elizabeth Watt, we owe you a significant amount of gratitude. Absolutely. And thank you for impacting Dr. Shahana Alibi. Thank you, Dr. Watt. Shahana, thank you for giving us your time. My pleasure. I had a blast. We are in your debt, and I hope to see you again very, very soon. Sounds like a plan. Thank you. Happy holidays. You too. Take Take care. care. Bye. Okay, I know that she's a doctor, but can I say that Shahana Alibi is one of the coolest chicks I know? Is that fair? I think that's fair. We talked about a lot of fascinating things. We spent time talking about her incredible impact at the Youth Health Center. She shared with us her pyramid philosophy on health, which I think could be transformative for her patients, and it's clearly been transformative for herself. We talked about her involvement at the Breast Health Clinic and all the amazing things that are happening there in the lives of women 
who are dealing with and struggling with what is most likely the greatest battle of their lives. And I think what we learned is that Shahana Alibi is an engaged caregiver in our community. And she is the epitome of Everyday Amazing. And she's exactly what I want on this show. And I'm so happy to have been able to share her with you. Please be sure to check out the show notes for more information on today's episode and for Dr. Shahana's website. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and to check out our website at everydayamazingpodcast.com.